Today, our guest is here to discuss his new book, Hybrid Warfare, The Russian Approach to Strategic Competition and Conventional Military Conflict, and How It Applies to Global Events. Therefore, he wanted to let the audience know that the comments in this interview are his own and do not reflect any other organization or affiliations that he might be a part of. So now on with the show. Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground for the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. This is Curtis Fox. Curtis, Jack Gaines, how you doing? Doing good, man. You're very punctual. Today we welcome Curtis Fox, author of Hybrid Warfare, a Russian approach to strategic competition and conventional military conflict, which is hot off the presses and in stores now. We discuss the book's concepts and how they apply to current events. This is part one of two, so sit back and enjoy. Russia and Syria is a great example of a combination of, as you say, hybrid operations evolving into the full-scale kinetic operations. Yes, I think so. I will say I don't call out Syria specifically as a hybrid war. Um, It has hybrid-ish characteristics, but it was almost a hybrid war. It lacks Aktivnost, Benyezovnost, and Maskarovka. Yeah, can you describe those for for the listeners? Sure, uh, I can't even pronounce them, and I did read them, but <laughs> it'd be better for you to describe them. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I tell you what, I speak Russian, and they're still hard for me to pronounce. Right. Maybe the first term we can go into is, is Maskarovka, because this is one of the Russians' favorite terms, and that literally just translates to camouflage. This is the hidden hand approach that the Russians have in history done so well. They don't want these things to be di- directly attributable to Moscow. Activnost just literally means activity. And what they mean by that is all of the little things that you do in the background to try to frustrate a target nation's institutions from responding to the intervention that you're conducting. You do not want them to be able to get forces in the field. Preferably, you'd have them stay in their barracks. And you want to set up blockades that frustrate public transit and encourage people to stay in their homes. Or maybe come out in mass protest, preferably in front of City Hall or a police station so the political apparatus is frozen. And then Vinyezovnost is surprise. But it's surprise of, you know, like speedy movement. And what they mean by that is if they can use soft forces to rapidly deploy and establish some sort of a foothold on a limited number of key objectives then they need the rapid maneuver of heavy ground forces to entrench those gains. This was the secret sauce that did so well in the Crimean annexation back in 2014. So the the VDV, the Russian Airborne Services, uh, those are really the elite trigger pullers of the Russian armed forces. And once a number of Spetsnaz battalions had advanced far enough up roads and, and blockaded positions coming into the peninsula, the VDV immediately used a, a number of secured local airstrips to move in forces in mass. Right. Uh, and they spread rapidly throughout the peninsula and secured all those gains. 
you know, kind of reminds me of Bosnia and Kosovo during the conflict and how it has resulted in Kosovo having a Bosnian shadow government in part of the border towns. There's some real similarities in the way Russia continues to manipulate and maintain influence in Georgia and the you know, Serbian approach in Bosnia. That's probably where they get a lot of these ideas from. If you look at Georgia, there's an autonomous enclave called South Ossetia, and then another one called the Bakazia, which is right up on the, the, coast, the coast of the Black Sea. And the Russians would have us believe that these enclaves had ethnic Russians in them, that they would have you believe that they don't want anything to do with that government. And they want to remain segmented off and autonomous from the country with no trade and political independence. I remember Lithuania had that issue, too. They, they were arguing that there are Russians in Lithuania that want nothing to do with Lithuania. I, I remember them posing the same argument there. So it must be a form of foothold mentality where they're saying, look, these are our people. Sure. Yeah. Vladimir Putin actually talks about it as a genuine tragedy that these are Russian citizens that have been scattered across the globe and isolated from the government in their mother country never really, uh, you know, offers so many resources to come <laughs> yeah. home, you know, if it's really that big of a tragedy. And they don't seem to want to migrate to Russia on their own dime. But this being a civil affairs podcast, it's probably also worthy to point out something the Russians do very well <laughs> is they figure out what influencers have their hands on which buttons. They're very good at understanding which individuals have access to what information and which individuals run X, Y, and Z departments and who would it be good to make friends with. Right. They have good influence operations. They know how to map people and their, their networks and reach. So your book is really large. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I appreciate it. I mean, it's what, 500 pages? It's, I tell you what. My publisher made me take out three appendices and a, an additional chapter. I actually wrote a chapter, it was a comparative glance on U.S. doctrine to highlight how does the Russian apparatus, you know, the political apparatus, how do they actually create authorizations for these interventions? And then, you know, how do they actually deploy military force from the available units that they have in soft? And then I compared that to, you know, how, how we would do it in the United States. So that whole chapter was removed. And uh, then I had separate appendices on the Soviet arsenal that Russia inherited in 1991, including the nuclear ordinance. Huge maintenance cost. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then I had an appendice on the state procurement programs, GPV 2020 and 2027. And I go through all the hardware that they've been purchasing over the last 10, 12 years you know, for Army, Navy, Air Force, strategic rocket forces. So are you going to push those into a second book or are you going to make those online dependencies for people who just want to learn more about it? So those are on the website right now. You can actually go read those. And, you know, if you're, I mean, you need to be an Uber nerd to get into them. But if you want to know which electronic warfare systems Moscow is running in Ukraine right now, it's, it's all there. Well, if I'm Uber lazy, could you send me the link so I could post it on the website? For you, anything. I'll put it in the show notes. That way people can check it out. And then I'd love, I'd love to pivot from that and talk to you a little bit about some of the units that they actually need to execute these strategies. And the reason it's such a relevant conversation is because a lot of these units have been hollowed out now in the, in the current war, um, the Russo-Ukrainian war. So, Oh, wow. 
you know, the VDV has taken such extraordinary casualties that it, you know, it was combat ineffective by the end of last year. Is it kind of like that old saying about soft? The best time to train a soft person is 10 years ago. The best time to train a v, a new VDV, VZV person is 10 years ago. Is that, <laughs> is that what they're facing right now? It's a little bit of that. The other issue that they're running into is they just have nobody they can recruit into the ranks. They have an inverted demographic in their country. And so they just have no healthy young people um, that can serve as soldiers. So they can go through and, and round up the, uh, you know, the, the homeless and they can go through the prisons and they can round those people up. They have a vicious, vicious narcotics crisis in Russia and they can, they can put people who are addicted to, to substances in the armed forces and you can throw those people in as cannon fodder, but they don't perform the soft mission very well. And they certainly don't make good elite light infantry. Yeah. So they're in a real pickle as far as deploying elite forces go. And you need those, you need those elite units to conduct hybrid warfare. So maybe that's a good starting point. Are they recruiting other people than the white caucus people, you know, from the steps? So they don't have a, a race issue that's also blocking it. It's entirely possible if they get desperate enough that, yeah, they'll start channeling them into elite units. I don't really have any direct evidence that they wouldn't have put people from an Asian disposition into, you know, let's say the 10th Spetsnaz Brigade. Right. Um, but the the big one to watch are the Chechens. The ruling family in Chechnya is allied with Vladimir Putin, and uh, they're very willing to contribute troops. But one of the unspoken realities about that is that the more Chechens are organized into, you know, the Volstok and Zapad battalions right. and pushed into foreign wars. Uh, the fewer Chechens there are at home to cause trouble for Moscow. And there are other ethnicities that start getting uppity. Moscow will absolutely adopt similar tactics. Sure. Now, the the trick is, though, the surviving Chechens that are battle-hardened come back to Chechnya, what's the risk that they'll flip the nation back towards independence? It's definitely on Putin's mind. Sure. But the goal is, first off, those those individuals are loyal to the family. And, and uh, Putin basically rules Chechnya through a, a puppet governor, let's say. Right. It, it operates almost as an autonomous vassal state. And so they would first have to fight their own people. And then the second issue is that you know, Moscow has absolutely no qualms about sending a special missions unit down there to round somebody up in their home. I mean, you can go to their Wikipedia page and they're open and honest about saying they still conduct operations in Chechnya all the time. Actively hunting people down just to Actively hunting people down. And they're, they're on the southern end of Chechnya. And uh, those guys will have no problem going up there and getting them. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's dangerous, but it's unlikely. It's less likely right now. Yeah. Unless Russia comes out of this Ukraine conflict so battered that everyone starts seeing the blood in the water. Right. The one thing that could create a, a real separatist movement in Chechnya uh, is if Kardarov and his cronies decide that they're just going to switch allegiances. Sure. If he decides that Putin is weak or that serving Moscow is no longer in the family interest, that would change everything. Okay. So we were talking about the development and evolution of hybrid warfare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little off track. That's okay. We'll just play as is. Sure. It's fine. Well, and, you know, Chechnya is a good place to start for this because the first and second Chechen wars were so taxing on Russian international standing and resources and manpower 
and so embarrassing for Moscow that they realized they needed to come up with another way to do this. Mm-hmm. They needed a way that would limit their investment, limit their risks, limit their attribution, right. and let's say stack the deck in their favor so it was more likely that they could slant the outcome to victory. And they've had a long-term intelligence practice. And so do you think that a lot of their successes in intelligence were just incorporated into a more military style that they just weaponized it a little bit more? That is, I mean, everyone talks about Gerasimov, but that whole generation of thinkers all kind of mold over the idea of how do we bring all of our resources together at a pinpoint on an issue so that we can shift it to what we want, our desires. Yes. Let me, so let me, let me kind of outline the framework here, I guess. And, and I think I'll answer your question. Sure. There is a ruling class in Russia of about 200 individuals. Right. Those 200 individuals are, they call themselves Sloviki. Most of them were educated during the Soviet era. The education system collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed and it was never rebuilt. And so their talent pool that is constantly getting smaller and dwindling. And a lot of these guys are into their mid 70s now. Some of them, like Sergey Lavrov, came from the Foreign Service, but uh, a lot of them are, are simply KGB men, like like Putin. So these aren't these aren't long term families of Russia. No, they're not the they're not the Vanderbilts. Yeah, they're not oligarchs for sure. They're they're only oligarchs in the fact that they wield influence. Yeah, basically the, the uh, promise that Vladimir Putin made to the Russian elites when they started this project when he came to power as president was that, look, if you back me, everybody's going to do very well. We will all get wealthy. But if you oppose me, that's a great way to die. (laughs) Here, let me prove it. Here's an example over here. (laughs) And he is not the return of Joseph Stalin. He is not that powerful. He is Russia's most important power broker. Sure. He gained power by playing all of these different factions off one another. Sure. A lot of the oligarchs that, you know, were Russian Soviet officials that seized state assets after the Soviet Union collapsed, right? And that's where they got their money. Those individuals are outside the ruling clique, but they absolutely realize if they oppose the ruling clique, they could wake up in the morning, you know, and slip on some bullets in the shower. And uh, that'll be the end of <laughs> So hybrid warfare... It evolved um, simply because the people that make decisions in Russia understand how military intelligence works to a certain extent. And they know how military intelligence is supposed to support active combat. Right. They're basically strategic reconnaissance assets for each brigades, in particular, our uh, Russian military district. So think of Marine Force Recon or, or maybe the 75th Ranger Regiment. Their job is to fill, first and foremost, an information role, an intelligence role. And they all actually report up to the GRU, which is the Military Intelligence Service. And the GRU is actually the Russian's most effective intelligence agency. It's the only one that wasn't catastrophically reorganized after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's insulated from all of those post-Soviet shakeups. And so they've maintained a you know, steady course as an institution. Then the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, which is kind of like the, the Russian MI6. So the GRU is traditionally responsible for planning these interventions. They plan the Russo-Georgian War. They plan the annexation of Crimea. They probably planned the war in Donbas. And we know they planned Syria. And they did pretty well in planning all those things because that's their job. Yeah. 
And it's also because they're an intelligence organization, they handle people, they have networks of sources in the country that they, whether by pay or by um, patriotism or other, other methods, they have them in their pockets. So it makes it easy to move from just what we think of as intelligence as just passively collecting and reporting for other people to decide to actually manipulating the environment so that it is open to the type of operation you want to achieve or even to achieve a foreign policy goal without operations. Exactly. So it, I could see how that would build into hybrid warfare. I think you're hitting the nail on the head. So, you know, when they need to remind a former Soviet Republic, let's just say, you know, Georgia, you know, it will be the GRU that will collect the information for the general staff and then organize should be to Moscow, a limited deployment of military forces to you know, stand up some kind of a militia in a place like South Ossetia. And, uh, the GRU will have their coordinating information campaign to create a, a narrative for the intervention. Right. Something along the lines of ethnic Russians are being brutalized. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's regime has an obligation to act to protect its citizens abroad. Right. The GRU will manufacture passports and distribute them to, you know, to people in, in a place like uh, uh, Transnistria. That is the basis of hybrid warfare. Once they can create a little bit of a maneuver room and enough political chaos, that's when they can actually start inserting elite forces and then perhaps uh, stand up some proxy forces that can frustrate local military and police. And then needed, they can accelerate and surge in the VDV to solidify their gains. Right. I've also seen where Russia also starts integrating with local criminals, sure. pay them off or bring in gangs to support them. No, I, I definitely wouldn't put it past them. They will do that. I think that they're mostly concerned about making sure that the, the local junta stays loyal and there are real consequences for a junta that stabs them in the back. Right. The Russians have done a pretty successful job of pushing the French out of Algeria and, and yeah. the Sahel in some recent operations. Because a lot of those look very much like hybrid operations to support a strong man in those countries taking power. And I talk a little about that in chapter one. You know, first off, the Soviets were very eager to conduct what we might consider hybrid operations in Africa. You know, their operatives, they always claimed that these were Russians that were on vacation, which is just, <laughs> you know, preposterous. And, and if they're not Russians, then they're Cuban proxies, right. places like Angola or, or Namibia. But uh, the Russians are falling in on a Soviet tradition. Do you want to talk a little bit about how hybrid operations is used pre-conflict or how it's used to maintain control of a population? Where would you like to go next? So I think where I'd really like to go is to emphasize that what we're calling hybrid operations in a lot of ways is very similar to NATO doctrine in terms of preparatory activities. Uh, the term we use in the United States often is pre-crisis activities, uh, which right. is a civil affairs specialty. You know, go into country, make friends, assess infrastructure. The special forces does this a lot. We're conducting joint training missions and, and helping them construct counterterrorism task forces. The next piece of that, though, is war is becoming imminent. And that's where we start conducting operational preparation of the environment. And that's where we actually start figuring out how would we put forces in countries, maybe starting with soft, 
And then how would SOC prepare the battle space for the introduction of heavy ground forces? This is part of what the Russians do so well in hybrid warfare. Sure. And the, f- the final piece is, you know, what we would call advanced force operations, which means war has been declared and we now have to facilitate the movement of SOF into country now. And there has to be preliminary engagement and targeting in order to allow the units that need to go kinetic to be kinetic the moment they arrive on the ground. So which means we need advanced forces to do all the intelligence work in order to build those target packages beforehand. Right. And that's the real heavy lifting secret sauce that the Russians did so well in the Crimean annexation. The difference is that the joint force commander in the United States can't just call the State Department and say, I need you to come up with a framework of sanctions so that it ties into this messaging campaign in order to support the actions that we're executing on the ground. In Moscow, the economics and the diplomatic initiatives and the information campaign are all coordinated, and they're, they're coordinated in a way where they're supposed to complement one another so that you get this whole-of-government holistic approach to crisis management, let's say. And that's the real difference. You're saying that they, have a better, they do a better job of integrating the political culture, economic and military information aspects of an operation. Yeah, first off, they're... Their system is it's not as big. That might be the best way to say it. And Vladimir Putin can just wave his wand and tell people this is what's going to happen. <laughs> and so that's a piece of it. Yes. There's no congressional deliberation. There's no consulting of the big A committee. Sure. No NSC knife fights. Yeah, they're... Their goal is to coordinate all those things so that they complement one another. Now, we're absolutely capable of withering sanctions on any country in the world. And, and cutting off a country from the dollar is, is the kiss of death. Right. 90% of the global transactions are conducted in the dollar. But we don't coordinate that with ground operations. Right. We are developing you know, a common lexicon around irregular warfare. In the United States, we're essentially... We're saying that these are actions that are meant to compete for the goodwill and influence of the population itself. Well, how do you see the U.S. and its Western allies mitigating, managing, responding to Russian hybrid operations? I think Jim Mattis actually gave us the answer. And, you know, during the assault on Dier el-Zor in Syria, the Wagner mercenaries, they were coordinating mechanized force that included main battle tanks and they were maneuvering on this outpost and there were a number of u.s soft personnel at that outposts and they used existing deconfliction to tell them hey like you're coming across the the euphrates river you're entering american zone stop and it was garasimov himself who actually told mattis that no those aren't russian guys those aren't our guys we can't control them we don't know what they're doing and Mattis had authorized days before a massive wreck and stack of air power at the disposal of those units on the ground. And the moment that he got a confirmation from Grasmoff that those aren't Russian troops, he said, all right, well, they're all going to die. And uh, they were pounded to death. The New York Times reported something like 200 Wagner mercenaries dying in that assault. And what the Russians wanted was for U.S. civilian leadership to waffle and to worry that we could be killing Russians, we could be starting a war, we have to be careful. 
But the recipe for success here is to give them no ambiguity as to what your response is going to be if they violate a red line. And then to stack the assets up as necessary to follow through on your ultimatum. So you tell them, look, if you cross this line, we're going to hammer you. And when they cross it, you hammer them. But for the, let's say for the Russian troll farms, right? These are run by the GRU and they're meant to turn the temperature up in, in Western politics. The first piece is that we actually do have the capability to a certain extent to shut those farms down. If I were advising a policymaker, I would tell them that we need to think about using that extent to shut those farms down as needed and identifying the people that are participating in those farms because they are disruptive. You know, democracies need to be able to function. I will also say that, I mean, this is a modern variation of a tactic that the Russians have been using. They've always been prying a crowbar into fissures between the Greek European powers and frustrating their political process for centuries, specifically to make sure that there's never going to be a coalition that's actually strong enough to march east towards Russia. That's the end of part one, so come back next week for part two. Today's music is from the Disney film Coco and is a tribute to Anna Ophelia Mergua, who I once met in San Diego at a film festival. Anna passed away this week at age 90, and so I wanted to give her a tribute through the music. So see you next week. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes. One CA Podcast.